0: Hey everybody this is tina again with good nurse bad nurse we have a really special episode this week because not only is this good nurse bad nurse but is also walking home from the icu which is a podcast that is so inspirational so informative and i think life changing for a lot of people and I hope system changing for a lot of people. Um, and having said that, I would like to introduce my guest host very quickly at the beginning so that you can understand kind of what this is. We're, we're doing this, what they're calling a pod crawl. So we are both going to be releasing this episode on our individual podcasts. So
1: Callie, will you please introduce yourself to my listeners and then I'll introduce myself to your, your listeners. Yeah, this is so exciting to be combining forces with a number of podcasts, which we'll see on social media That's we publish each other's episodes, all dedicated to delirium, which is one of my big passions. So I'm Kaylee Dayton. I'm a nurse practitioner, but when I started as a nurse over 10 years ago, I started in an awake and walking ICU. No one called it that. No one even told me it was a big deal to practice it the way that they did in that ICU. It's a medical surgical ICU. It's high acuity, informally an ARDS unit but they allowed almost every patient to wake up after intubation and mobilize shortly after. And they've done that for over 20, 25 years now, probably nearing 30 years. And so because no one made a big deal out of that, I had no idea that that was novel until I became a travel nurse and I went elsewhere and I realized that all throughout the country (laughs) and every other unit I worked in and 11 other units, patients were automatically sedated right after intubation and throughout their time on the ventilator. And I, as a nurse, unfortunately didn't have the tools to advocate for my process of care that I'd come from and been exposed to. You never want to be that travel nurse that says, well, where I come from. But I would ask, hey, why is the patient sedated? Can we get them up? Because that seemed natural and innate to me. And I was immediately met with complete shock and the constant response of, no, they're intubated. So I went with a flow for a few years, went back to that ICU and resumed treating patients in the awake and walking ICU as a nurse. And then later nurse practitioner, I started talking to survivors, diving into the research, and I suddenly was shocked by what I found and constantly asking, why don't we as a medical, and especially critical care community, understand the patient perspective? And why are we practicing this way if we know with decades of research the harm that it does? And thus, the Walking Home from the pod- ICU podcast was born. So it's really exciting for me to combine forces, especially within the nursing community, to talk about what is actually going on in our units. Yeah, well, I, and I'm so excited about it. And before
0: all you ICU nurses bail on me, because I, I feel like you're all going to go, what? <laughs> this is insane. And turn on, please don't do that. The, if, first of all, this is going to be a traditional good nurse, bad nurse episode. For, so for your, cr- your true crime junkies that I know, li- come in here and just listen to the bad nurse story. <laughs> Number one, please don't do that. I always tell you that the good nurse stories are so good and so entertaining. But this week, uh, you, you're going to want to hear this. We are going to have a sort of the the badner's true crime story it's it's very fascinating but also just eye-opening and and just scary and horrifying and so i i, I really, you're going to learn so much from this please listen to this episode it is is so crucial and important for you and so for for those of you who are on the walking home from the ICU podcast I'll just to briefly introduce myself. I am Tina. I'm a registered nurse. I have a podcast called Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I just talk about so the bad things that go, I kind of like look behind the curtain and talk about the bad stuff that can happen sometimes in healthcare. And sometimes the people that are just that just do bad things. Sometimes good people do bad things. It just happens. Sometimes people do bad things and they don't mean to. And sometimes people do absolutely mean to, and we need to be aware of all those things that go on and talk about it openly so that we can recognize it, do something about it, maybe educate ourselves and learn from it. And so that's what the Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast is all about. And I've had it since 2018. And so I am so excited to get to do this episode with you and kind of, I love the idea of combining forces with all these other nursing podcasts. And hopefully all of our listeners will kind of get to know these other podcasts and, and, um, these other nurses who are out there trying to, you know, just spread information in different ways, whether it's encouragement or just educating, talking about uh, different things. What are some of the other uh,
1: nursing podcasts that are in the pod crawl? Um, I'm up in my nursing game, Fresh RN, Cup of Nurses, one of our emergency nursing podcasts. I can't remember. Oh, oh, um, Art of Emergency I, Nursing, yeah. Kevin. And we're all talking about delirium.
0: And Rapid Response RN is. Yes. Rapid response are I love her. So I hope I didn't forget anyone. I shouldn't have uh, sprung that on you at the last oh, minute. I should have had that list. I apologize. We'll have them in the show notes. Uh, we'll put well. it in the notes. so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So I guess we can get started Tina, hit us with, with your this bad, nurse bad nurse story.
1: It's so oh bad. my
0: goodness. It's it's bad, but it's educational. We are going to learn so much, um, you guys. And I, I want to start off by saying, I love to joke around. I do have a dark sense of humor. You guys know that about me. I laugh at inappropriate things all the time. I'm terrible. I am horrible at funerals because I express so many emotions through laughter and it's horrible. I feel, I always feel so bad. I will be smiling talking about something. I'm going to, if I ever get in trouble and they bring me in, like if something bad happens and they're thinking I did something, they're going to be like, yeah, she was just sitting there smiling the whole time. You know, she did it. And I say that because we're going to talk about some memes and some things that are out there that might be detrimental. It's not always appropriate to laugh at certain things and make light of certain things just because it can spread misinformation and it can cause other people to to think, oh, it's okay to feel this way and think this way. So I don't want you guys to think that we're just a couple of sticks in the mud. You know I'm not. I, I laugh all the time at
1: just crazy things. I'm ridiculous. And I've laughed at the sedation means. We'll get into that. But I have I've been guilty of it as well. So this isn't to demonize anyone. No, absolutely not.
0: And it's a learning opportunity. And so, so please just bear with us and, and just hear us out on the rationale and, the you know, just the thinking behind some of these things, you know. So, having said that, I guess we can get started. This story. Oh my goodness, Callie! So, this is the story of Yvette Hunter. She was a registered nurse in Lexington, Kentucky, and this, this is a very fresh story. It's actually it was just in the news uh, a couple months ago. So, Yvette Hunter was she's fifty two years old. She was a registered nurse, as I said, since since two thousand eighteen. So, relatively new registered nurse. However. She had been an LPN, a licensed practical nurse, which a little side note, they're nurses, they're, they're still nurses. And yeah, so that always drives me nuts. <laughs> Absolutely nurses. And they do, depending on what state you're in, they do almost the exact same thing as registered nurses, even at the bedside, believe it or not. I worked alongside them. And they're absolutely amazing. And they are underappreciated and underpaid. But anyway, I I cannot ever say anything about LPN without saying that. It's just, I can't, it drives me crazy. Such an injustice. But she had been an LPN since 2007. So she was definitely an experienced nurse without a doubt. So don't be thinking, oh, new grad, well, I mean, relatively new. I mean, I think it takes years and years and years to get really to where you're seasoned. She'd been there. She was employed by Baptist Health Lexington, and on April the 30th in 2022, as I said, this is pretty recent, she was assigned to the direct care of a 97-year-old James Morris. Morris was a World War II and Korean War veteran. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Had been admitted after a fall and slip injury. He was reportedly restless and had spent the previous night in a recliner in the hallway instead of his room. The 97-year-old patient became agitated and aggressive, according to Nurse Hunter's account of what happened. So I just want you to think about this. I'm not sure what kind of facility this is. I feel like it might be some sort of skilled nursing mm-hmm. facility, like maybe a higher level. Sounds like care it. Kind of, yeah, that's what I. That's the f- feeling I had. Okay, and so. I have worked in facilities with geriatric patients who have a tendency to wander off, and you know we had we would put them you know at the nurses station so that there would always be somebody there to watch over them to make sure they're not going to hurt themselves, maybe give them something to do, give them a little pile of washcloths and they'll sit there and fold them and just talk to them whatever and so I that's sort of what I picture here like yeah, to try to keep an eye on him. So documentation from the Kentucky Board of Nursing says that nurse hunters sought to restrain Morris due to his distressed state. But according to the investigators, no one actually witnessed her using restraint. So that's a little bit of a discrepancy. I think initially, Maybe in the uh, first investigator's report, they said she was trying to actually physically restrain him. Using uh, sedation or sed- sedative type medications to relax somebody and keep them from getting up and keep them from moving. Well, that is a restraint. So she reportedly asked for Ativan or lorazepam to help alleviate some of his distress, calm him down. And hopefully, she and in her mind, she's thinking not hurt himself, that she was afraid, you know, that he was going to get up and hurt himself. So the on-duty physician and nurse practitioner both denied her request for lorazepam. Now, prosecutors have said that her next course of action was considered maltreatment. The facility where the patient was at has referred to it as a medical discrepancy. So you guys can decide, but I, I, I know where I fall on this. Pretty firmly, around 7:27 a.m., she allegedly withdrew a two-milligram vial of lorazepam from the OmniCell. And for those of you that don't know, that's just the big cabinet that's computerized and Pexis, Acudos, all those things. You have to a lot of times use your fingerprint or whatever sign in. Uh, it keeps track of absolutely everything that goes in and comes out, and they know who took it out, and they know all. Kind of, they can get all kinds of information from these things. So she pulled this, not out of his, because he didn't have it ordered, but a different patient. So in her mind, she's thinking, oh, so the doctor and the nurse practitioner won't give me this. I really feel like this patient needs this. I'm so afraid he's going to hurt himself. And so I know this other patient has it. I'll pull it out of theirs, use it for him. And I don't know what in the world she thought she was going to do. I just don't, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. To do to do this anyway, but I don't even know how she thought she was gonna get away with it. About five minutes later, he set off his alarm his chair alarm, but trying to get up. And, and this can be frustrating. Um, like I said, I worked in a facility. It was a behavioral health unit for geriatric patients. And it would it would be really, really frustrating and scary to take care of people who were constantly trying to get up. And these people are so fragile and unstable. And you're so scared they're gonna hurt themselves and it's scary as a nurse that you're responsible for these patients. So I totally get it. I don't want to um, minimize that at all or pretend like, oh, what? you know, no, we get it. We understand as nurses why a nurse would be concerned about this patient and be trying to think of ways to help uh, minimize the risk of them hurting themselves. So multiple members of the hospital staff came to the alarm as what usually happens. You know, you hear a chair alarm, everybody goes running, Right hopefully, that's what happens, including this nurse. Now, while they're in there, she gives the patient something in, with a three to five milliliter syringe, puts something into his IV. She does this right in front of everybody. She's just, you know, puts it right into his IV. And then somebody who one of the, her colleagues said, what was that? What did you just give him? And she said, well, it's something special. So she was a little, mm -hmm, a little ambiguous. Well, he very quickly became sedated. And after he was put back in the bed, her colleagues, once again, what did you, what did you give him exactly? And she just kind of doubled down on that. Something special. About 30 minutes later, another nurse discovered Morris struggling to breathe and found that his oxygen saturation equipment was disconnected. Once the equipment was plugged back in, his oxygen level was reading at an unsettling 76%. So according to the documentation, the charge nurse was then brought in and consulted. And that nurse advised that the medication that was administered through, through the IV was what caused the patient's decline. In other words, she's looking at this going, it had to have been, you don't, you don't go from his state, what he was doing all up and trying to get up to, and you literally watch somebody put something in their, in their IV. Absolutely. There's no indication. Um, they go to look at the chart. Okay, surely if she, she gave him medicine, it's going to be charted, right? Because you don't do anything without charting it. You would never give a patient medication and not chart it. So there's nothing there there's nowhere anywhere on the patient's chart that indicates that you know there's anything ordered that would explain um his respiratory distress, his poor oxygen uh, poor oxygenation, his mental decline, nothing. And so a respiratory therapist is called in to to give a breathing treatment and they found the respiratory therapist found food, a like food bolus. So there was a like food stuck in his throat. So he apparently eventually developed pneumonia as a result of aspirating on the food that he was eating. Because apparently he was fed after he was given the lorazepam. And they were thinking, okay, he's sitting there kind of sedated and and not able to really, you know, chew up his food and swallow it really good and drink a drink and have it all go down. And so it just sort of got lodged there. And then He wasn't able to breathe adequately, didn't have good oxygenation. So they put him on hospice care on May 3rd, and two days later, he unfortunately died. So now, before this incident, he was reportedly doing well, and so well that he was going to be released from this, or to a rehab facility. So the nurse was terminated from her position on April 30th, the day of the incident, On or about May 5th, the Kentucky Board of Nursing received a complaint from Baptist Health saying that Hunter's employment was terminated for a suspected, quote, medical discrepancy. So the board investigated the concern and determined that Hunter had disarmed and lowered the oxygen monitoring system several times because she was tired of it going off. I mean, this is another thing that I have experienced a lot of times in the hospital dealing with patients who's like a real fidgety and they have the little O2 probe on their finger. And the thing just get, maybe they're just like, maybe they're playing with it or whatever, but it just gets off and it's not, it's reading. It's not reading at all, or it's reading sixty And you're in and out of the room. And the patient's there. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yep. It is exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting. But if they have it on, they have it on for a reason, if it's ordered, you know, to monitor their oxygen saturation. And so, no matter how frustrating, you have to just be diligent about it. You have to just keep, you know, replace the O2, try to get creative about, you know, alternative places to put it. Although there, there's some controversy about that and, you know, the accuracy, I think, of some, some of those options. But at any rate, you can't just turn off the machine. I mean, you just can't. If there's an order given by a provider that the patient is to be monitored their O2 is to be monitored. The O2 has to be monitored. I mean, you just, you're going to get in so much trouble if something happens. It's, I mean, it's a huge liability. Well,
1: I mean, did she lose her
0: license? At the time, in a released order of suspension from the the Kentucky Board of Nursing, she allegedly admitted to administering the medication without an order and subsequently feeding the patient. So, okay. So this is what she's admitting to. She's admitting to administering a not just any medication without an order, but a s- controlled substance without an order, and not only without an order, but going against specifically had asked for it, was told no, and then just defiantly. It's even worse than I thought it said, was. I didn't realize that she it anyway. asked for <laughs> request an order was denied. Then ended up once the medication was given, fed the patient. And so the whole thing was just a complete mess. The order says that Hunter intentionally falsified paperwork to indicate that the the, the lorazepam was, quote, not given. That would have been on the other patient. So what she did is she, yeah, she went into the other patient's
1: chart and and just put not given. So it did not look like she was diverting drugs. Right. I see. I mean, obviously, there's so much wrong with this. The Easy Bites are not given medication without an order taking out the oxygen probe, false documentation, things like that. Most of the beds, I can see that. But if we zoom out more, it this falls in line with a lot of systemic problems that I see. As a nurse, worked in the ICU for seven years, I, of course, I heard the word delirium a lot. I probably could have identified it in that patient, right? But I was not panicked about it. I didn't know about the drugs that I was giving. I didn't know um, what they do to patients. I didn't I think there's a big gap in education. Now, from my perspective, being obsessed with delirium, I'm seeing a 97-year-old that's at high risk of delirium, and we don't know why he was agitated. Was he in pain from his broken hip? Ativan wouldn't treat that. That would just mask it. Was he sundowning? Did he have dementia? Did he have some sort of infection, UTI developing? Was this acute delirium? And the treatments for delirium are family presence, mobility, and real sleep. But when you give something like a benzodiazepine, especially, that disrupts the brain activity so severely, it blocks REM cycle. You make it so that they cannot sleep. You are depriving them of sleep, which is one of the reasons, uh, ways in which benzodiazepines and many sedatives in general cause delirium. So if he was, let's say he was just having only acute delirium and we're going to a benzodiazepine, we're going to exacerbate that delirium. We're masking agitation. We're not treating it necessarily, but even further out, a ninety-seven-year-old probably has altered renal function to some degree, which benzodiazepines are cleared through the the kidneys. But we also have a contraindication for benzodiazepines, lorazepam especially, according to the Beers criteria, which tells us which we should and should not give geriatrics. Lorazepam is top on that list of medications we should not give geriatrics because. Even with normal, healthy patients, it has an increased risk of mortality, increased risk of delirium. What I didn't know was that for every one milligram of lorazepam, there is a twenty percent increased risk of delirium. And no one told me that, right? When we're running into these medications because we're trying to just diffuse that situation, we think we're trying to we're keeping the patient safe, right? Because we're keeping them in in the chair, we um, want them to be comfortable, and when they are sedated. They look comfortable. They look like they're sleeping. And so we pat ourselves on the back and we say, good job. And then when we're told no, we get frustrated thinking that these providers are heartless. They're, un- they're clueless as to what the nurse is going through, which is sometimes can be the case. But when I see these memes laughing about 0.25 milligrams of Ativan, they're frustrated that they're not giving a bigger order. I think they don't really realize what the price is for that two milligram bolus. Because you may have the patient look more comfortable for those few hours, but that's going to metabolize out. And in a few hours when that wears off, how do they come out, Tina? You know, we've all seen it. <laughs> it you just lock them into this roller coaster of highs and lows with the Ativan. And we see that especially with alcohol withdrawal. That's why CWA protocol and lorazepam is on its way out. That is an antiquated protocol that does not help outcomes for the most part. And a lot of times it's because of this benzodiazepine-induced delirium that it causes that just causes this roller coaster that's really hard for nurses to deal with. So then you just run back. You're like, okay, Ativan worked a few hours ago. I'm just going to give that again. Problem fixed. And we only see our shifts. We have this very narrow focus. And so we see how they respond in those few hours. They look more comfortable. We've done a good job. We've kept our patients safe, wink, wink, because we've kept them in bed. And zooming out again, I think a lot of this has to do with the culture of liability for nurses, When falls happen, when unplanned extubations happen, it's all on the nurse. Um, They're so afraid of losing their licenses. And because we have the system that doesn't support nurses, we drive them into this hard spot where they're like, I just have this situation. I just need to keep them safe for my shift. Instead of the system looking at the bigger picture saying, how can we keep this patient safe for now, but also set them up to be able to survive and thrive, But the nurses are like, just as long as they don't fall in my shift, I don't care about anything else. They don't say that. They don't think that they think that. But that's what we're trained to feel. I just need to keep them in the bed for my shift. I'm going to clock out. Then it's not my patient or my problem uh, because they don't know what happens after.
0: We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault, the dosage is the problem. This is why CBDstat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work, and now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. And a lot of times as nurses, we learn through our experiences. And so we have a patient who's agitated. They have a milligram or half a milligram of Ativan that's ordered. We administer a half a milligram of Ativan. We see them get calm. We are able to go on with our shift. The patient doesn't fall. Everything is great. Now we just learned through that experience that Ativan works. So What we don't get to see what you're talking the the consequences of that later on down the road unless we are doing things to educate ourselves and so this is this is why this sort of thing what you're talking about with uh, the benzodiazepines and, and the effects of them and why we don't give them why they should not be given that needs to be explained at some point nurses need to understand why we're giving what we're giving and why we are not giving what we think we should be giving. given, you know, and I I just I think that sometimes, some doctors, um, and nurse practitioners are kind of like, there's just thinking, well, it's not really my job to educate the nurse, I I, I don't have time, they have so many patients themselves, a lot of times way too many. So it's just like, no, I'm not going to do it and then move on instead of taking an extra minute or two to just explain very briefly, why it is not appropriate. I, I've had do- really good doctors and nurse practitioners that have done that for me before about other things like why, why wouldn't we give Lasix or fluid overloaded or you know, whatever. And then once it's explained to me, I'm just like, Oh, I well, should I didn't know that. Okay, it's because I didn't go to nurse practitioner school, I didn't go to medical school. But I learned that through proper education instead of just well, I know I gave Lasix and it helped them to get the fluid off, you know, but it, you learn things as a nurse about your interventions, and a lot of times, though, there's so much, so much more that we don't learn. And I mean, it's it's a, the medical side of it that uh, it just it's a whole another step for it's a whole another universe, you know. And we can learn those things as we go, but what we don't need to do is think that we know more than the providers, you know, and think that think that we know more because of our personal experience. Well, I've been giving this for so many years, and it always does this or always does that, you know, that's, it's so tempting to do that, to think that because of my personal anecdotal experience, I know more than this doctor who, or nurse practitioner that doesn't want to give this particular medication. And I think that that's probably what happened. She was just like, there could be no reason. Uh, clearly, what the the reason that the doctor and the nurse practitioner both did not want that patient to have Advan is exactly what happened to that patient after he was right. Given
1: And I think what should happen in those moments, because agitation is real, it can be an emergency. What we don't realize is that delirium is an emergency. And we prepare our nurses with tools and education and training for other emergencies that are far less likely to happen, but not for delirium, which happens in up to 80% of ICU patients, but throughout the continuum of care. We don't really educate nurses about what delirium is and don't give them a sense of urgency that it delirium is a medical emergency. Um, it's in the past been called acute brain failure. Now for billing and stuff, they're not wanting to call it that, but it is it is a sign of brain dysfunction. It, this is a symptom that something is going wrong with the brain and the brain matters. It's an important organ. And so we don't feel urgent about it because we're so used to it. It's so normal. Oh, they're confused. They're sick. Of course, they're going to get confused. But it's more than just confusion. What we need to t- train our nurses to understand is that these symptoms are likely to turn into a chronic thing. So patients that have delirium in the hospital, at least, are at 120 times greater risk of long-term cognitive impairments. And this means that they have a hard time remembering things, processing executive function. They can't oftentimes go back to their jobs because they they don't have the same cognitive capacity. One survivor told me he can't drive anymore. He was in his 40s when he was discharged from the ICU. He could not drive anymore because he doesn't have the same reflex or a response time. He's not safe to drive because he can't think quickly enough to drive. So those cognitive impairments aren't just uh, forgetting a word here and there. It can be, or it can be severe impairments that makes it really hard for them to have the same relationships, the same identity, the same profession, the same financial situation. It it has a huge impact, but we as nurses are not taught that. So we see this confusion, we see agitation, and we want to just make them still rested so that they're safe, but we're not thinking about their long-term safety because we're not given the tools to think through that. You know, we think we just need to keep them alive during our shift, right? But we don't see delirium and we don't panic with a sense of, wow, this delirium could double their risks of dying in the hospital, triple their risks of dying six months after discharge, or we've got to get this patient out of delirium because for every one day delirium, there's a 10% increased risk of death. We're not given that information to make decisions based off of the evidence, right? What we culturally learn is they're agitated, sedated. Um, And that's not malicious on anyone's part. That's because we want to keep them comfortable. What we don't especially realize is what it's like for many patients when they are delirious and especially sedated, is that they're not sleeping. Again, to clarify, sedation is not sleep. Benzodiazepines, sedatives like propofol, they disrupt Brain activity, so they cannot sleep. So, you know, in war, sleep deprivation is called torture. But in the ICU, it's called standard of care. (laughs) And I know that sounds harsh, but that that's we're masking delirium, we're exacerbating and prolonging delirium and often causing delirium with those sedatives. And when they're not sleeping, for whatever reason, the brain seems to more often than not go into the deepest, darkest most morbid, gruesome, graphic realities that are far worse in the ICU. So survivors have told me about thinking that they are kidnapped, that their children are kidnapped. They're watching babies burn. They're watching their loved ones be torn apart with their insides gushing out on repeat for days to weeks. So from our side, we sedate them. Their eyes are closed. They're not moving. We call it sleep. We tell the families they're sleeping. We feel like we are sparing them. The trauma of the ICU What we don't realize that underneath, we're actually keeping them locked into a a cycle that is going to cause long-lasting psychological scarring. And so when we take off sedation in the ICU, oftentimes they come out thrashing and they're agitated. And we've assumed that that was just the endotracheal tube. And so um, we want to spare them awareness of the endotracheal tube. So what do we do? We run right back to the sedation. And so I think systemically, we need to have better education. Nurses need to know what they're looking at so that they can be eager to assess it. They can identify it. They can know the risks of these medications. But especially, they need to have the tools to treat it. So a provider over the phone saying, no, no lorazepam, bye. That's not adequate. That's not cutting. That's not supporting your nurses. That's not helping patients. Rather, providers need to come to the bedside, especially in the ICU, I feel like, or anywhere, really to the bedside say, you asking for lorazepam gives me a sign that something's going wrong, that we're having an emergency. What's really going on? This patient has delirium. What could be causing delirium? Are they, um, have they been sleeping? What do they need to sleep better? Have they been mobilized? Do they have a new infection? I mean, this is a sign of something going wrong, but we can totally mask it and miss what's going on underneath. So we need to support nurses and going through that critical thinking process and say, when we identify that it's delirium, we need to say, okay, we need to especially avoid sed- sedatives. You don't treat an infection with bacteria. So treating delirium with sedatives is very much along the same lines. But what can we do? We can't let a patient just be trying to crawl out of bed and be thrashing and agitated and, or trying to hurt the staff. We know that delirium increases workplace violence. It makes sense. I've, at conferences, I've asked, who here has been assaulted by a patient? And I myself even raised my hand. And I said, put your hand down if those patients were completely oriented and free of delirium. And I don't, I, don't, I don't think I've really seen hands go down. So delirium is one of those huge risk factors. So it's a risk to everyone involved. Patients that have falls in the ICU, 75% of them have delirium. Delirium makes the risk of unplanned extubations 11 times higher. So we're concerned about those events, but we're not really treating the root cause of it. So in that moment, the providers... The nurses, the therapist, everyone needs to join in to say, this is a medical emergency. This is life-threatening. This can change the trajectory of their hospital admission and their whole lives. This will double the nursing hours required for care. We know that. It doubles the nursing hours required for care. So to say, I don't have time to treat delirium, that may be true in that moment. But look at the big picture. The system needs to say, this is going to be a huge thing. This will increase hospitalization by about seven days at least, seven to 10 days. So it's worth investing in mobility in that moment. Changing visitation restrictions, get the family in there. Family presence for more than two hours a day decreases the rate of delirium by eighty-five percent, maybe no, eighty-eight percent. Get the family in there. Communicate with the patient. Try to figure out what do they need, what's causing the agitation, but mobilize them, wear them out, and then let them get real sleep, uninterrupted by sedation, and then rinse and repeat. That's how we make a systemic change and we really support our nurses, not just to say wow, that Pam situation that she shouldn't have given a medication without an order. But to say what was really happening? She was in a crisis. Yes, it wasn't a good decision. But what, what influenced her decision?
0: Right. And she absolutely just went so far out of bounds that it's really unthinkable, I think, to most nurses. I think most nurses are seeing this going. On. I totally can understand how she was feeling and the frustration. But to go to go to pulling a, a med that was ordered for someone else and giving a med that was not ordered, I can't, it's so hard for my mind to even understand. And the board said that she was unfit to continue practicing nursing. So they, they didn't even feel that she was
1: redeemable as far as just education or just a suspension. Something similar happens in the ICU, at least. Um, I see memes talking about joking about how wrath orders are subjective. Sedation orders are like by ner- PRN versus like determined by the nurse, right? Jokes about nursing boluses, things like that. I have a survivor friend that's a lawyer and he said this is if they were something were to happen, this is completely against this is absolute evidence that they are consciously practicing against their licenses. So wrath orders are what determine the level of sedation, right? Or measure the f- efficacy of our sedation, what depth of sedation they're at, right? To give more sedation, to sedate beyond the prescribed RAS level is giving medication without an order. You're giving extra doses of sedation. Um, we never would give an extra milligram of encomycin, especially without an order, and especially if the trough said it was at a therapeutic level, because we know that that's never toxic. We know that it's dangerous, but we totally disregard that when it comes to sedation. And that's a cultural thing. No one's really meaning to do that. I think also that comes down to, are we training our nurses on the RAS? Do they really know how to accurately assess the RAS? And so when we chart a certain RAS, but the patient in reality is a lower RAS or different RAS, that could be considered false documentation. So I worry about nurses being vulnerable and liable for over sedation, practicing outside of their license, their scope of practice, false documentation, all these things, because culturally they're immersed in that process of care that teaches them to do that. Yes.
0: We are all at risk, I feel like, working in hospitals, uh, working in direct patient care. We are all at risk, whether it's just making a specific decision like this was that was obviously it's a, it's just plain out against the law it was just actually just there's no other way to say it she was it was wrong it was it was illegal it was unethical in every every sense of the of the word they actually turned it over to the Kentucky Attorney General's office on July the 7th and then believe this or not she had obtained a new position as a travel nurse at the University of Kentucky Chandler, Chandler Hospital through an external agency. It's so unbelievable. She was indicted on August 22nd for one count of murder. Her bond was initially set at 100000 However, her attorney was able to successfully request the bond to be lowered to 50000 She's not required to wear an ankle monitor due to no criminal history and not being considered a flight risk. And according to the death certificate, his cause of death was listed as pneumonia. So now her legal team is saying during their court testimony that it's really unprecedented for somebody to be locked up in jail and charged with murder for a death that was ruled a natu- natural, by natural causes by a medical examiner. Her defense team saying that this patient suffered from s- uh, several significant conditions that contributed to his death. They have to have a defense, right? They have to put on something. And I, I feel like this is probably about the best they're going to do. It still feels like grasping at straws to me. Her legal team said also that before the Commonwealth indicted her for murder, they neglected to consult with the medical examiner, nor did they seek to do any toxicology to determine the levels of lorazepam or any other substance in the patient's system at the time of death. The, the thing is, I don't think it would have mattered because she admitted that she did it. She gave the, the lorazepam. It was not ordered. Period. I mean, the whole progression of everything, the fact that he was so agitated and so awake and so mobile and moving around and then went to being completely calm to the point that he couldn't even eat and it got stuck in his throat. He couldn't protect his Mm -hmm. airway. He
1: couldn't coordinate his swallow. Um, I just imagine that he was reclined in bed. So medication aside, but critical thinking for a nurse, feeding a patient with an altered mental status like that, who's somewhat attended. Yeah. yeah, you can. And I, I think that
0: it's tempting sometimes for people uh, to want, especially when you're having to feed patients and they have, have more patients than they probably can really safely care for. And they get in a hurry and they're just sitting there, you know, just trying to feed a patient who's obviously sleepy It is so unsafe. It's so dangerous. And you're just risking so much by doing
1: that. Obviously, that's what happened here. And I think, again, that probably comes down to education, too, and culture. Because I I work telemedicine. I popped in on rooms and I see patients, yeah, almost completely reclined on high flow and nurses (sighs) shoving food into their mouth and they're barely opening their eyes. So, I mean, it's a culture thing. I wouldn't say that this is just one nurse completely going against everything she's ever learned or experienced. It should be part of our education and our culture. But I see, obviously, her errors, which were going, getting a medication, giving a medication against the order, especially controlled substance, obviously. But there's a lot more to it that I think um, we can and should learn from. Yeah.
0: And the fact that, um, you know, she is out of jail right now, but she is going, her trial is set for June the 12th and it's scheduled to last for about four days. But I, th- I know that there are probably people out there screaming at their radio right now going, uh, you know, Th- there, there's a staffing problem. I guarantee you she had way too many patients and I totally understand that, but I know you guys know that it does not matter if you have accepted that patient load. And, and, and I say this with the utmost respect for every nurse, because I, I, I'm a, I worked at the bedside. I worked in ICU, worked in, I was a travel nurse. I've done it all. I've, I've seen, I've been handed unsafe assignments and I've accepted unsafe assignments many times not really even understanding when I was doing it, what, what I really was risking, that I really don't think that I understood it. And I don't think that a lot of nurses understand what you're actually risking when you accept these unsafe assignments. And that that's the thing. She accepted this assignment. And so even if she, it was an unsafe assignment, if she had way too many patients, and she somehow in her mind justified giving this medication, there is nothing that's going to justify giving a patient a medication that wasn't ordered ordered for them. Absolutely, period. There's just end of story. There is no. It is never ever justified to give a patient a medication that isn't ordered for them, and to think. I I, I know that there are people that want to have compassion for her because of that whole nurse patient ratio problem, but we have got to start thinking about what we are signing up for working at the bedside. And the thing is, if you walk on to if you you took a job, you said, if you pay me what $30 an hour, whatever it is, if you pay me $30 an hour, I will come and I will take care of patients for you. And the doctor and the 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 hospital says, okay, we'll give you $30 an hour if you come and take care of our patients. And they say, okay, well, how many patients am I going to get at a time? You're probably going to get Oh well, well we we want it to be ideally. So that's how they always start off, you know. Well, ideally on this progressive care unit, you should have three. Some days we have to flex up, you know. They and so you agree, you you agree to that right up front. And sometimes maybe they're maybe they're a little dishonest. Maybe they're just like, oh, it's three to one. We don't. Oh yeah, we would never go over that. And then next thing you know, you're handed four. You're handed five. And so, but when you do it, when you agree to take money to take care of patients. And you in your mind know that it's unsafe. And you cont- you agree to go ahead and say, Well, I know it's unsafe, but I'm going to go ahead and take care of these patients. Anyway, you are agreeing to it. You are saying that you are okay with it. And I, you really are. And it's, it's what I had to learn myself. I had to accept that for myself at some point. And I had to go, you know, I'm taking responsibility for these people. This is on me. And the if if we as nurses continue to do this and continue to take unsafe unsafe patient loads, if we just continue to do it, I think they're going to just keep locking us up because this this case deserved to be prosecuted the way it was. She absolutely gave some that was, this was an, uh, absolutely illegal. But there are some nurses that it's inexcusable and there but there are some people that are that we make just good faith errors. We just make a mistake.
1: And sometimes it is due to inadequate patient ratios. I would also like to see systems support nurses in a process of care and a system that gives them the tools and the access to actually treat delirium and not just run in the heat of the moment to throw sedation at it. I think sometimes physicians will order out of just because they don't want to get those calls all the time. And so this is not just on nursing, but when that tool is available and nurses just keep throwing it out there without having tools to critically think through the scenario, nor access to people to help with mobility, family, you know, we've put on these big restrictions. We've set nurses up to be yeah, in that moment of desperation absolutely. is kind of the way I see it. And nurses are the, the gatekeepers of delirium in so many ways. They have the power to completely turn this around. They just need to have the opportunity, education, and tools well, to actually Well, I think that it.
0: more nurses are going to have to really put their foot down and demand demand safety in in these hospitals they're just going to have to if that means walking away from your job and finding a hospital or finding you know a, a place of employment that can, that does they they do exist they are out there believe it or not that we're just we're going to have to do that we absolutely are going to have to do that so i have to tell you guys about an experience i had with a nursing student so you know i've been doing travel nursing Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day, and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo technology company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core digital stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course, I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. I think that kind of brings us to a point where we can kind of get into our good nurse portion of the the, the story. Because... I'm really excited about this person. You guys are, this sounds so innovative. It sounds so like this just came along. This is something new, this walking home from the ICU or awake and walking in the ICU. It sounds so impossible, but this started a long time ago. Tell everyone
1: about the good nurse this week. Yeah, this this story just exemplifies the power of nursing. They're really about two nurses. So Polly Bailey was A nurse in the shock trauma ICU in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, This is in the '90s when we were really starting to deeply sedate everyone, (laughs) and that was really rooted in experimenting with treating ARDS. Before that, patients one weren't as sick; they weren't able to keep patients with sick lungs alive for very long. So patients usually had tracheostomies; they were on the ventilators; they were awake and walking, but. In the 90s, they started to be able to treat ARDS, but they had stiff endotracheal tubes, archaic ventilators. They were using big volumes, high peeps. So it was really uncomfortable for patients. There's no way they could really synchronize with the ventilator. And so that's when they started bringing up medications from the OR into the ICU and using that to help patients synchronize the ventilator during ARDS. And they immediately noticed that they oxygenated better, they synchronized better, and they looked more comfortable. And It made them, quote, sleep. So that looked good for the moment, but they didn't have data to say what happens to these patients over time or long-term or what happens after the hospital. Now we know that very few of those patients survived, and those that did were severely maimed. But because of that perception that we have just with that little glimpse in the ICU of them being sleeping and comfortable in the ventilator, those medications, those benzodiazepines, barbiturates, opioids, those started to sneak into how we cared for patients on the ventilator for other diagnoses, not just for ARDS. Polly Bailey followed out a survivor who ended up going, um, was from her hometown. So she would visit this survivor as a young mom in her 30s, and she saw what it was like at home. And this is really before rehab. So they basically scooped them out of the chairs, put them in the, the car, and that was it. So Polly watched this young woman, mother of, I think, three or four, spend months and months, even up to a year, trying to get up the stairs. Her husband was having to do bedpan with her. She was psychologically and cognitively destroyed. And so she went back to her medical director and said, what are we doing here? If, is this the life that we're saving patients for? Because this isn't right. This isn't worth it. She proposed that they try to avoid those conditions of delirium and ICU weakness, but they knew very little about it. There wasn't what we have now, decades of research. This is a complete experiment. And imagine this is the 90s. Polly is a female RN. You're shaking your head. You understand. Millennials and down. I think we don't appreciate what Polly Bailey's did for, our, for nurses and for women in our profession. So just appreciate what that was like for her to say, you know what? I know no one's ever done this before. There's nothing about it in the research that I can find, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Let's keep patients awake and walk them. But Terry Clemmer, he's in my episode number two, he trusted nursing instinct. And so he let Polly wake patients up and mobilize them on the ventilator. And they quickly noticed that it changed outcomes entirely. So they started doing that with more and more patients. The hospital started a new ICU and they let Polly be in charge of hiring and training the nurses. And she basically said, welcome to the ICU. Here's who we who we are. Here's how we do it. And stopped even sedating patients. And she just made a total culture shift. And Louise Bestian was one of those early nurses in that shock trauma ICU that was open to trying it out with her, saw the impact, said, I'm in. So those two still, Louise Bestian just retired last year. But they became nurse practitioners, but they were basically working as MPs before that was really a role and running this ICU. And so even during COVID, they led probably the only awake and walking COVID unit in the world. They just stuck to what they knew. And they they were the first to put out a study showing that it was a, safe and feasible to walk patients on ventilators. They're acute respiratory failure with really sick lungs. That was in 2007 that they published that study. Here we are in 2023 in the same situation, but the lives that they have saved and the quality of life that they have given back to patients is immeasurable throughout the decades that they've done this. So they were my mentors in the ICO. They're my inspiration. And I want nurses to know the power that they have to not only save lives, but get patients the ability to thrive after the hospital. But so much of that is rooted in how we prevent and treat delirium. And so when nurses, I just... I've constantly felt that when nurses really understand what delirium is, what it's about, there's no way that they're going to let things continue the, on the way they are. But until nurses know, nothing can I'm change. I'd really curious to know if there is a study
0: or, or some way of knowing how the COVID patients did in the awake and walking ICUs versus all the others. because uh, In every COVID ICU, and I've worked at multiple COVID ICUs, and everyone that I've worked in once they went on the ventilator, it was very unlikely they were going to come off.
1: I do know that their mortality rates were less than half of the other COVID units within the same hospital system, same community, same staffing ratios, everything the same except for their sedation and mobility practices. Formal study needs to be published. There's a lot of politics behind it, as you can imagine. It, it, it's a little exposing, but we'll get there because we, the, we definitely need to publish that. But everything within the rest of the research supports this approach. The, we put in the show notes the ABCDF bundle showed that this was dose-dependent. And if you look at, I can even give you the graphs, the less sedation was used, the more patients were mobilized, the more family was involved, the more their delirium rates went down, the more all of their outcomes improved, 68% decrease in mortality. And that was dose-dependent. That was with a spectrum of compliance. So the more you comply with the ADF bundle, which is extremely evidence-based, to get to an unwiking-walking approach, the better your outcomes are. And a lot of that even, a lot of that research was inspired by Polly Bailey. She shook the medical community and especially the early mobility studies that have come since then were rooted in one nurse asking why, why not? What well, if? I know that you,
0: you Oh, I, I love Polly Bailey. She is, I'm such a huge fan and Louise Bastion, is that her name as well?
1: Bastion. Uh-huh. I
0: mean, what trailblazers. And I, I'm so proud of them. I'm so thankful for them for doing this and for the people that well, I'm sure the lives that were saved because of this. I know that it's, this is like turning around the Titanic now those of you who are CVICU nurses I know that you understand this a little bit. I know you kind of get this because what do we we do it? We have to do it. They they when patients come out of open heart surgery, what do what are we doing? We're trying to get them out of the bed and in, into the chair and walking around with their chest tubes and their all of their their lines and and all the things that are coming out of every, every orifice. I feel like it's not that big of a a jump from getting a patient um, out of the bed with an art line, you know, an arterial line and a Swan GANS catheter, up, um, and the in the, two different you know atriums for for three chest tubes and walking them. You guys know we do this and we we hook them all up with their oxygen tank and everything. You know we do this and they walk down the. It's literally one more tube. It's just going it's helping them breathe. And I, but I feel like there's nurses out there going, this is insane. These people have lost their mind. There's no way. I feel like I'm so excited about it. Instead of thinking about it from a nurse's perspective, instead of thinking about you working in the ICU and having to deal with a patient who is completely awake and alert with the, with their tube in, down their throat, and you, you're scared to death that they're going to pull it out. Don't think of it. Think about it from the patient's perspective. If you were the patient, what would you want? And it sounds like from what Callie described, these patients, she's basically telling us stories that she is first had heard firsthand from people who've experienced this. Think about the horror that these people are experiencing that they've told you they've experienced, would you want to be experiencing that and have the long term psychological scarring, the psychological effects, the PTSD, the things you're going to have to deal with
1: later on down the road? I, it's not worth it. And what nurses are probably thinking is, they're imagining awakening trials and everyone all the time. And they're going to say, H, no, I'm not doing that. And what I insist is absolutely you can't do that. That's not feasible. That's not safe for anyone to do all these awakening trials. The point is that we ask after each intubation, does this patient have an indication for sedation? Is it worth the risks of all these repercussions of sedation to sedate them and then try to take it off later, because that's when we get patients coming out thrashing, agitated, in terror and agony. At five o'clock in the morning when one nurse is alone with them, it's just not sustainable and it's not safe. And oftentimes it's not effective. What we're working towards is asking those questions right after intubation and letting them wake up. And it's like coming out of colonoscopy, but oftentimes with less induction meds than even a colonoscopy and reorienting them. And hopefully we had a chance to talk to them beforehand. If not, we introduce this new, to saying, hey, you're in the ICU, you're intubated, this is helping you breathe, give them a mirror, let them touch their tube, let them touch their face, get them up right away, normalize the situation, um, unless there's a contradiction to mobility, which are few, walking, sitting, those things normalize your breathing pattern with the ventilator, it helps you feel more in control, less panicked, let them communicate, that helps decrease the panic, it's just putting this little effort in the first hour or two to buy days to weeks less on the ventilator. And a lot of that comes in t- down to delirium. We as nurses should be terrified of delirium, even just from our perspective, because it is so much work and risk, and it's heartbreaking. And so when we avoid delirium, we make everyone's journey through the ICU and throughout the hospital and even LTACs and sniffs, much better. And that awakening walk in Polly Bailey's ICU, 98% of their survivors discharged home from the hospital from a 2012 collection. They compared it to an outside facility, same patients. Forty-six percent discharged home. Same patients, same hospital system. So that's how much of a difference nurses, especially, can make in preventing delirium and changing where they go after the ICU. So Tina, thank you so much for supporting nurses, for believing in them, for moving this this along. I don't know if I'm into, a data collection from 2012 showed that in Polly's ICU, ninety-eight percent discharged home from the hospital versus forty-six percent in an outside facility. That's how much of a difference. Nurses can make in that moment, and a lot of it comes down to delirium. Preventing delirium, keeping patients mobilized, and that's where good nurses become great and actual experts in giving patients the ability to survive and thrive. And I know there are a lot of nurses out there listening to this who want to be those
0: excellent nurses who want who who do have open minds and are who are willing to accept. You know, even if it goes completely against everything they think they know and have learned and experienced. Who are willing to just maybe consider that there could be a different way of doing something that's better for everybody concerned? Is there somewhere they can go to ha- get some of this information, like actually get uh, have access to some of this research you're
1: talking about? Yep, on my website datenisuconsulting they go to the resources tab. There's a category for clinicians. That is is two by podcast, but it is organized by topics. So go to the delirium tab. You'll find testimonials from survivors, clinicians, and there are citations for each transcription of each episode. So find the topic, go to the bottom, there are the citations. There's also uh, usually citations to the Johns Hopkins library that has over 3,000 studies supporting this, also organized by topics. So it's a rabbit hole. Jump in, start digging. It's insane. (laughs) There's so much behind this. It just needs to reach the bedside, and I think it'll be nurses to do it. We're an evidence-based discipline. Yes. Absolutely. This needs to be uh, some research. Jump in there and do a research project.
0: You know how impressed... Your, your doctors around you and your other colleagues would be if you jumped in and got actually were did, did a research project about this and got this changed in your ICU uh, this this would be a, a life-changing for so many people so I encourage you to do that give me send me an email you can send me an email at tina at com and let me know if you do you work in an ICU where you actually let people get out of the bed while they're still in a ventilator and walk around let me know do you have your patients always sedated if they're on a ventilator is usually people will hear my podcast and they'll send me an email. Email and they'll just be like, Hey, I heard your podcast. I just want to let you know we're doing this and we're doing that. So I'd love to hear from you if you have a story to tell me um, or an experience. And if you have any concerns about it, I don't, I, this is, we have to have conversations before things change. So tell me your perspective. Let me know what you're thinking.
1: You know, don't get mad. Don't get mad at us. We're just trying to help. Any objection you have, I'm happy to provide discussion, evidence, resources, case studies, other clinicians that can help you work through that. That's how we make progress is finding the gaps and the barriers. So dig Absolutely. in. Absolutely, Tina, All thank right. you so much. I appreciate it. This has been wonderful. Yes.
0: Thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm so excited about this whole pod crawl. It's, it's going to be so insightful and we're going to learn so much that whole week. Remind
1: everybody where they can find you on th- um, at different places. Dayton ICU Consulting is my uh, social media handle and then um, com is my website and my podcast is walking home from the ICU
0: all right and of course you know obviously my uh, as I said in the beginning podcast is good nurse bad nurse podcast you can find me at uh, good nurse bad nurse on all social media sites and you can send me an email at tina at good nurse bad and I like to end my podcast by saying even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy be a good nurse